Well, good evening. We just got here like six minutes ago. <laughs> I don't know if Phil told you, but uh, I was in town in Joburg at a CCAP, a Church of Central African Presbyterian um, combined meeting. I have an acquaintance in that denomination. It's a Malawian denomination. And uh, they invited me to a baptismal service and to speak. And I should have known, you know, that when they said, yeah, we'll finish about one, half past one, that uh, we were not going to finish uh, at that time. And so we had to run back home and drop some friends and my wife and son off. And then Abigail and I jumped back in the car and then we drove out here and hit a couple really bad spots of heavy rain and uh, almost hit like 12 cars. But uh, thankfully, sort of. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, thankfully we made it here safe, so thankful to be here with you guys. I feel a bit kind of scattered in my mind. My daughter's in the mother's room back there watching herself, and uh, so I think she should be fine. Um, but if you hear any screaming or loud noise, maybe someone can jump up and uh, run back there and make sure she hasn't broken her neck or <laughs> any toys or anything. <laughs> she should be okay, though. Well, there you go. Look at that. Um, yeah. Um, sure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for doing that. We appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. I think we all do, probably as a group. Um, let me not spend any more time explaining a bunch of stuff that's not important. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 14. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 14. Last week, last Sunday evening, thanks, um, I was with you guys, and we looked at verses 25 to 33, sort of as like a part one, and I'd like to look at it as a part two with you tonight, just continue on where we left off. Let me just, we're going to read the text in a moment and then just continue on, but before we do that, let me just remind you of the context again. Uh, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, and this is the last time, actually, that he's going to travel to Jerusalem. Because when he gets there this time for the Passover feast, it's the very Passover feast where he is going to be the Lamb of God that is put to death for the sins of the world. He's going to suffer immensely, be rejected, be mistreated. He's told his disciples this multiple times. And so he's prepared them for it. And uh, he's going to get to Jerusalem. He's going to take up his cross in following the will of God for his life. And so along the way, he's also instructing the people around him and he's instructing us about the cost Uh, to be his disciple, what it means to, not what it means so much, what it requires, what Jesus requires of us, um, the conditions he gives us to be his disciples. Um, Look there at verse 25. We saw last week together that as Jesus was journeying, Luke tells us that there are great crowds um, who are following Jesus, who are accompanying him. They were tagging along, traveling with him on the road, And we said most likely this would have been a mixed crowd, right? There would have been people in this crowd who understood and confessed that Jesus was the Son of God, he was the Christ, and they understood something of what it meant to be his disciple and to want to commit to follow him. But perhaps there were others, likely there were many others, who were thronged around him, following him, who really did not understand what it was going to cost, what Jesus required of those who wanted to to follow him into the kingdom of God. And so Christ stops 
Look there at verse 25. Luke tells us that Jesus turned and said to them, and he's saying these words just as um, significantly to us here tonight. Look there at verse 26. I'm going to read for you up to verse 33. Here's what Jesus said to them and to us. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he has enough to go out with 10,000 and meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. As I've already said, I believe in in these words, we have Jesus's conditions um, to be his disciples. He tells us what we must agree to and what we must be willing to meet if we're going to follow him. And we saw last week the importance of these conditions before looking at them. Um, And we saw that the reason why these conditions are so important is because it's only true disciples of Jesus Christ that will enter the coming kingdom of God and have eternal life. So if you want to be in the kingdom of God when it comes, if you want to have eternal life, you must understand and agree to these terms, these conditions that Jesus gives us. And they apply to every one of us. They are universal conditions and they're absolute. There's no exceptions. Jesus isn't going to lower the bar. He's not going to grade on a curve. He's not going to change his standards or his requirements for anyone. They apply consistently across the board to every one of us here tonight. So we need to hear these. And again, for the second time now, we need to think about them and examine ourselves and see if we understand them and if we're willing uh, or if we'll continue to be willing uh, to follow Jesus' conditions as his disciples. Last time we looked at the first of three conditions. I said there's three here. I believe there's three that Jesus gives us. We looked at the first one, and I said that the first condition is that Jesus requires that we prioritize him, our relationship with him, above every other earthly relationship. Look there again at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now we said, I I hope we all saw last time, that um, when Jesus says we must hate Uh, the closest family members that we have here on earth. He's not literally calling us to loathe them, to abhor them, to wish evil upon them, to say and do things to injure them or to harm them. That's not what he means when he's calling us to hate them. What he's calling us to do is to be so committed to him that by comparison, anytime a relationship with an individual comes into conflict, with our relationship with Jesus. We looked at some examples, or we considered some examples last time. 
Like if a brother or sister uh, tells you to do X, but Jesus tells you not to do X, whatever that is, and you've got to choose in that moment, am I going to obey the instructions of my family member and honor them by doing what they're pressuring or telling me to do? Or am I going to disobey their instructions, disregard them, and choose to obey Jesus? Because his instructions are contrary to my family members, Jesus says we must be willing to follow him. And maybe even, not just to offend or disrespect, but maybe even lose that relationship with a family member if that's what it takes in order to follow him and obey him. He's just calling us to be so committed to him that by comparison, it looks like we hate, we despise, we don't love our family members any time Uh, our relationship with them comes into conflict with our loyalty and love for Jesus, okay? Now, tonight, I want to look with you at the next two conditions. So we're going to come to the second condition here in a moment, but take a look again at verse 26. Jesus doesn't stop by just calling us to hate our closest family members and following him. He says there in verse 26, yes, and even his own life. The verb is hating. It goes back to hating. Yes, we must hate even our very own life. Otherwise, he says, we cannot be his disciple. Now, again, when Jesus is calling us to hate our own lives, uh, what does he mean by that? Is Is he commanding us to do physical harm to our bodies? Perhaps to overwork ourselves or to undernourish ourselves, not to eat, to withhold food and drink from our bodies, and in a way, perhaps to to murder ourselves, to to act out in harmful ways against our own bodies in in order to, to follow him. No, I don't believe that's what he's calling us to here. Well, what what does he mean then when he says we must hate even our own lives if we're going to be his disciple? Look at verse 27. I think verse 27 follows on from the end of verse 26, and we'll see the second condition here in a moment. Jesus says in verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Simply put, the second condition that Jesus gives us, if we want to be his disciple, is this. We must die. It's that straightforward and simple. When Jesus talked about bearing our cross, taking up our own cross and going after him, his hearers who heard him say those words at that time would have understood without any question exactly what he was calling them to. There was no confusion about what it meant to to take up your cross. Everyone knew that at that time, anytime they saw a man walking down the road with a crossbeam on his back, they knew exactly what he was heading for. He was heading for public crucifixion. Before a man was crucified on a cross, he was required to take up his crossbeam and carry it to the location of crucifixion, and then he would be crucified on it publicly and put to death. There was no issue here. In fact, 30 years prior to Jesus saying these words, um, there was a Jewish rebellion. You remember at the time, the Jews in Palestine and Israel, they were under the Roman Empire's authority at that time. And the Romans wanted them to remember that and to live in light of that. But there was an uprising with a man named is it Judas. Yeah, Judas of Galilee. 
He, he rose up, and a number of people rose up with him in rebellion against the Roman authorities. And when the Roman general came into Galilee, he squashed the rebellion. But after squashing the rebellion, he wanted to leave a lasting impression on the people's minds. He took thousands of Jews, and he crucified them, and he lined the road into Galilee with crucified bodies publicly. You see the message he was trying to communicate. If you think that you Jews are going to rise up and overthrow us Romans, let us remind you what we do with criminals. That was considered treason at the time. That was a public act of crime, and so they were publicly executed by this Roman general. And they would do that often. They would line roads going into major cities in the Roman Empire. They'd take a thief or a murderer, and they'd crucify him publicly, and they'd post his crime on the cross so that as people came into the city, they could see this man is publicly crucified to death by the Roman authorities for murder. And it was a warning, a clear warning. If you think you're going to come into this city under our authority and commit murder or commit theft and get away with it, if we catch you, we want you to know this is what we do with murderers and thieves. We crucify them. We put them to death. So the idea of taking up a cross of crucifixion uh, was very clear in the minds of the Jews and of these people who would have heard Jesus' words at that time. At that time, crosses were not worn. They were not printed as graphics on T-shirts. It was not cool to wear them on T-shirts. People didn't wear them as jewelry around their wrists or around their necks or around their ankles. Um, people didn't put up symbols of uh, crosses or crucifixes in their homes. I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong. Either it was then or is now. People didn't do that because of what the cross stood for. It was a symbol of public shame and humiliation. It was a symbol of suffering and agony. It was the worst way to die at that time. It was a symbol of public execution and death. It wasn't something that people just hung or showed off lightly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, maybe some of you know that name and, and know a bit about him. He was a German Christian at the time when Adolf Hitler, in Germany, at the time when Adolf Hitler was the leader of the Third Reich of the Nazi regime. And he was arrested um, under the Nazi regime and eventually put to death for his convictions, for standing out against Adolf Hitler and Nazism at the time. He wrote the following. He said this, The cross is laid on every Christian as we begin, notice that, as we begin discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. Thus it begins. Listen to this, he says, the cross is not the terrible end to a God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our life with Christ. When Christ calls a man to follow him, he invites him to come and die. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. And have you thought about following Jesus in that way? That when you hear the sweet words of Jesus, come follow me, have you heard him saying to you, come and die? We ought to, that's what he's saying. If you communicate the gospel to other people and you invite them to follow Jesus, in some way, are you faithfully communicating to them that to that man or woman, that, that child, that older, younger person, whoever it is, I'm inviting you, Jesus is inviting you to come and, and follow him, to come and to die, to lose your life, to follow him. And what does it mean to, to lose our lives in, in following Jesus? I think, obviously, I think we would all agree that at the very least, what that means is we must be willing to put to death 
all known sin in our lives. Anything that we know is of the flesh and not of the spirit, anything we know is sinful and displeasing to Jesus Christ, that he clearly spells out in his word he does not want his followers to be living in, we need to put that to death. We need to repent of that, put that away, and walk in the opposite manner. We need to forsake all sexual immorality and pursue purity of mind and of body. We need to forsake adultery and pursue being faithful to our spouse. We need to forsake lying and tell the truth. We need to put to death stealing and laziness and work hard with our hands. We need to put to death pride and pursue humility. Put to death anger, bitterness, vengeance, and wrath, and pursue love, patience, forgiveness, kindness, and gentleness. We need to put to death all jealousy and envy and pursue contentment. Put to death all drunkenness and pursue being sober-minded and forsake all grumbling and complaining and pursue giving thanks and rejoicing. Perhaps one of those or there's another area of your life that's coming to mind that the Lord wants you to put that to death, put that off, and walk in the opposite virtue by his spirit. But I also think that denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Jesus, involves more than just putting away obvious sin in our lives. I think it also means that we need to be willing to give up anything and everything that competes as a ruling desire with Jesus in our lives. Anything that we realize that for us as individuals is hindering us from following the will of Jesus as the Lord of our lives. Let me just give you a personal example. I've got this iPad here, iPhone here. I'm very thankful for these devices. I'm thankful for the ability to communicate on them, to listen to sermons, to watch wholesome videos, to write down notes. I actually forgot my notes. I'm glad I have this here, my notes here electronically. So there's a lot of good that we can do as followers of Christ with these kinds of devices. But for me personally, when it comes to to these devices, I need to be extremely careful because I can easily get online and look at, for me, a big temptation is sports videos. I get online, I watch a few sports videos. I'm just going to spend 10 minutes on sports videos. And then off on the right-hand side of YouTube is the next game highlight. And then here's like the top 10 plays of 2022. And then the top 10 plays of 2021. And then top 5,000 plays of the last decade. And it's just one video after another after another. And I can easily get sucked in on YouTube or other social media when I haven't planned, I'm not being self-disciplined, and just spend all kinds of time just wasting that time unprofitably. And so for me, that's an area of my life where I felt that the Lord wants me to be more disciplined, have more self-control, maybe cut out certain things. It's not wrong to watch videos, I don't think for me or for anyone. But for me personally, I realize that it's a competing desire sometimes and that it sometimes is not the will of Christ that I spend so much time in that area. Maybe you hear me saying that and you think, what's your problem? You know, I just... Just turn the thing off, you know, or I don't even know why you're watching sports videos to begin with. I find them so whatever. Um, well, that's the thing is, it's, it's for me. And maybe it's something different in your life, okay? Whatever it is. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's an activity. Maybe you enjoy cycling. You enjoy gymming, um, woodworking. I mean, whatever it is, right? I, I, we, we stayed with Phil and Esther. So when I looked at him and said woodworking, I knew he likes working with wood. It's not wrong, right? But it could be. It could become something, the degree, the amount of time, the amount of focus it takes, whatever that could be, 
Just though I think the Lord wants us also at times where it's not clearly sin, he might sometimes just want us to do less of something, to, to give up something in order to more fully follow his will for our lives. That's going to be between you and me as individuals and our consciences before the Lord. You've got to work that out on your own. But I, I think most clearly um, what Jesus is calling us as his disciples to here is if we're going to follow him, we must be willing to experience rejection, shame, humiliation, mocking, abandonment, loneliness, disrespect, dishonor, threats, dangers, loss, attacks, hunger, thirst, pain, disaster, sorrow, personal injuries, maybe imprisonment, or even actual death itself. We're so disconnected from the first century, and we're so disconnected from the experience of Christians around the world right now, who for them, when they hear these words, are thinking, yeah, I might lose my head next week. And I thank God that we live in a country where we have the freedom of religion. We can worship Christ. We can meet like this. We shouldn't despise that. We should make the most of it and and be thankful for it. But maybe it's going to change. Or maybe the Lord's going to call you to a place where it isn't as popular or as free to follow Jesus and make disciples and confess him. And we need to be ready for that if that's the Lord's will for our lives. If any comforts, any pleasures, ease, job, salary, ability to get food, pay rent, status in society, likes on Facebook, honor among brothers, respect among family, acceptance by culture, uh, home language, perceived rights or privileges, freedoms, safety, health, ability to preserve my life. If any of those, trying to hold on to those, come into conflict with the will of Christ for your life, Jesus is saying we need to be willing to let those go to literally put a cross through them, to put them to death, to lose them in order to obey Jesus and his will for us in our lives. You'll have to work that out. George Mueller said this. He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died, died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will, died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then I have studied to show myself approved unto God. Did you hear what he said there at the end? He said, I didn't just die to the approval of the world. I even died to the approval of brothers and sisters in Christ. It's like he's pushing it even further. And sometimes Christ does that. I mean, there's going to be times that you're going to be just reading your Bible. And Mueller was a Bible guy. The reason why he did this or he experienced this is because he just read his Bible and he wouldn't let anything but the Bible ultimately be the authority of what he believed and what he practiced as an individual, as a pastor of a church, how he ran his ministry. He wanted to build it all upon the Bible. And at times, his views, his opinions landed him in hot water, uh, disagreement. He tried, I think, three times with the London Missionary Society to be sent out as a missionary with them. And because of his strong opinions, and again, some of them we might disagree with, but he felt the Lord was leading him in a particular way personally, and he had strong opinions in some areas, and he could not agree with them and could not be sent out by that London Missionary Society. And he just thought, that must just be the will of Jesus for my life. You know, it's nothing necessarily sinful or wrong with me or with the society, but he fell out of the ability to be sent by them as a missionary. Um, 
perhaps maybe that's partly why part of your story as to why you're even here as the, at this church. Maybe by reading your Bible, you develop some convictions in some areas that were very different than the church tradition you grew up in or that you experienced uh, more recently in the years of your life. And you said, I, I just have to leave this. This is not the true gospel or this is, I think this is a true church, but the doctrine is so unhealthy and unsound. And I tried to talk to leadership. I tried to talk to friends. And I actually lost friends in a lot of relationships in many years in this church. It hurt very badly. But I had to follow where Christ was leading me to a sound church that was teaching the gospel and sound Bible truth. Maybe you'll experience that in the future. Whatever the cost, though, Jesus is saying discipleship has the highest cost. And the question is, have we counted it? Have we considered it? In the past, do we understand it now? That's really what Jesus is after, counting the cost. Because in verses 28 to 32, look there with me, he's going to give two pictures of the cost of discipleship. And he's going to call us to consider what it will cost us to follow him. First, he's going to talk about a man who wants to build a tower. Look there again at verse 28. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him and say, This man began to build but was not able to finish. I mean, we, you see Jesus' point, right? It's, it's pretty straightforward and clear. Only a fool would begin to build the foundation of a house or a tower without first counting the cost to see, do I have the resources to see this through to the end? Only a fool would do that because he might get going and then all of a sudden he reaches for some more resources to pay his workers or to buy more materials and he realizes rabbit ears. I've got no more money to fund this project. Pockets are empty, bank accounts empty, and you know what's left there, right? A perpetual memorial of his folly. Just a foundation, or a partially laid foundation. And people walk by and it becomes a a byword, a proverb. Hey, what's that? Oh, yeah. You remember? You remember that guy started to build, what was his name? Jacob, whatever, so-and-so. Yeah, he started to build and he didn't even think about whether he had the resources to finish. And sure enough, he wasn't able to finish. And they just scorn the guy. He becomes the joke of the town, the butt end of all the jokes as they walk by and remember his half-built, half-baked foundation that he laid there. Jesus said only a fool would do that and become the mock of the town. He says, but a wise man, a wise man would first stop, plan it out, understand what it's going to cost him to make it to the end and complete the project. You see what Jesus is saying. He wants his disciples to stop and think about, what's it going to cost to follow Jesus in my life to the end? To be able to not at any point stop and say, I'm out. I'm done. And only make it part of the way. Only lay part of the foundation of persevering to the end when he comes back. He says we need to stop, think about what it's going to cost us. Why is that important? Because if we don't understand the cost of following Jesus, it is, humanly speaking, more likely that we will begin the journey of following Jesus with one idea in mind or no idea in mind of what it's going to cost us, and then at some point when it really starts to cost us, 
when it starts to hurt, when we start to experience the kinds of things we saw last week with family members or, or even just earlier now in our lives of denial and cross-bearing and pain and difficulty, we're surprised by that. We weren't prepared for it. We hadn't considered that that was going to be involved with following Jesus. And for many people, that's enough for them to decide in that moment, I'm done. I'm turning back. If this is what it's going to cost to follow Jesus, I'm done. I don't want to follow him anymore. I'm out. Now, maybe some of you know people, family members, close friends, in the past or present, that fit in that category. At one time, they would have been very excited about Jesus and and seemed like true believers, and they were committed to follow him wherever he led. And then it was just a matter of time before some pressures came into their life, some affliction, either maybe some suffering, just personal difficulties and challenges, where the cost of following Jesus became too much. And where are they now? Not in church anymore, not reading their Bible anymore, have either gone fully back into the world or kind of trying to live in between the world and the church, trying to hold both together. They're not going to be able to keep either one in that, in that state, but where are they? They've turned back. They've forsaken the Lord Jesus because of the cost of following him. Jesus does not want anyone to experience that. I believe he's loving us when he tells us these things right up front. I love this about Jesus. He doesn't want to sugarcoat it. He doesn't want to bait and switch. He doesn't want to manipulate us. He doesn't want to offer us one thing and then trick us once he kind of hooks us in and gets us in. Um, He just wants to tell us right up front. If Jesus had a billboard, you know, on the highways, you were driving by, the letters would be in large print, very clear, no teeny tiny little small print on bottom that you kind of read the, the top stuff. And then as you're going, you have to kind of squint your eyes and you go, well, I bet you there's some really important stuff on bottom there that they didn't want us to read. But legally, they had to put it there so they couldn't be prosecuted when someone gets a disease from eating their food or trying their skin product, you know. These companies, they, they put these terms and conditions sometimes. Um, you ever seen these, uh, like, pharmaceutical commercials? They're telling you, showing everyone's so happy. And, uh, you know, take this pill and, and your life's just going to be great. And the guy's hitting the six with his cricket bat. He's throwing his kid up in the air and catching him. He's like 92 years old. And, and then at the end, all of a sudden, this voice comes on and just starts going, and if you slow it down enough, you, you actually listen, and the voice is saying, like, 90% of people who take this drug die within a week of trying it. You know? It's not, I, I'm exaggerating, right? But there's a reason why they build it up, and it's marketing. And if any of you are in marketing as Christians, good luck. I mean, I just, it's very difficult, I think, to... Uh, Now, you got to just think about that. But Jesus isn't that way. He doesn't want to deceive us. That's the way Satan works. That's the way the world works. Jesus just wants to tell us the truth up front. He just says, count the cost. If you don't want to follow me, don't follow me. Don't follow me. There's consequences for that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I just, he, we have the ability to make these choices, and he wants us to make informed decisions. He doesn't want anyone to be manipulated emotionally or dragged in. Or No, here is what it costs. You want in or not. You make the decision. But he wants us to be informed up front, and I love that about him. He speaks the truth, and he calls us to consider the cost. Before we look at the third, sorry, the yeah, second picture in the third condition, just 
remind ourselves, we've seen the first two conditions. We need to prioritize Jesus above every other earthly relationship, and we need to, to die. To die to self, to die to sin, to die to the world, to die to anything and everything that would hinder us from following Jesus' lead in our lives. Third condition is going to come in this second picture here. Look at verse 31. Jesus shifts now from a man building a tower to a king going to war. He's going to talk about a king going out to war. He says in verse 31, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Ask for terms of peace. Again, this illustration is very straightforward and obvious, right? A wise king, a foolish king, sorry. A foolish king would send out scouts and say, tell me, how many soldiers, how many cavalry are on the other side? And the guy comes back and says, 10,000 cavalry, 10,000 infantry. And the king just stops and says, okay, so... I don't know how many we got, but uh, I say we just go for it. <laughs> that would be a foolish king, wouldn't it? Uh, about a week or two ago, I was reading, I don't know if some of you have heard of or read, Sun Tzu's uh, The Art of War. Maybe you've heard of the book, but it's supposed to be a, a classic uh, historically. Sun Tzu's The Art of War. And I was so excited to read it, and I don't want to spoil it for you, but I actually, I don't know, I didn't find it all that helpful or insightful personally. Maybe if I was um, a soldier, maybe if I played more chess, uh, I might find the principles in there uh, more helpful. But, uh, but one thing that was very clear was he said in there, and he's just saying what Jesus is saying here. He said, only a fool would not consider what he's going up against. And having considered it, if he knew he was outmatched, would still go to war. He says, if you're outmatched, you go for terms of peace or you tuck tail and run. It's that, those are your only choices. He says, otherwise, you, you're committing suicide. You're just going to get yourself and all your soldiers killed. It's folly. That's all Jesus is saying here. It's, again, very straightforward. A wise king, he says, would calculate. How many do they have? How many do we have? How many of each kind? What are our chances here? And if he realizes he's outmatched, what does he do? He sends a delegation. He sends representatives to go and to negotiate what Jesus calls here terms of peace. Now, I think it's important that we think about that phrase terms of peace, because I think as Jesus says this, that his hearers, when they heard going to war and terms of peace, their minds would have went back to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Let me show you why I say that. If you can turn quickly to Deuteronomy 20, do that. If not, feel free to just listen. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 and 11, God is giving to Israel through Moses instructions for when they come into the promised land, here's how they are to wage war when they come up to attack a city. Here's what they're to do and here's what's to happen. Verse 10, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, notice this, offer terms of peace to it. So you have impending conflict between two peoples, and terms of peace being offered. Same language as in Luke 14. 
And, verse 11, if it responds to you peaceably, so if it agrees to your terms of peace and it opens to you, here's how it should go down. Then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, it rejects your terms of peace, but instead makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. I find that very interesting. Um, If you think about it, what's being said here is, when Israel went up to a fortified city in the promised land of the pagan peoples, and they were going to wage war according to God's direction, they could first offer it terms of peace. And when the people asked, what are the terms? The representatives for Israel were to say to them, you have two options. They're given here in these verses. Option one, you open up to us. Open up to us. We won't attack you. We won't overrun you. We won't put anyone to death. But if you open up to us, here's the conditions. Every single one of you have to become our slaves. You have to give over everything you own into our possession, and you have to become manual laborers for us. That's option one. Become our slaves, give over everything you own into our possession, come under our authority, and you'll live. Option two, reject option one, wage war with us, we'll wage war with you, and when the Lord gives you into our hands, we're going to kill every single man of a certain age in your city. Which one you want? Those were the terms of peace. If you wanted to make peace, you had to become their slaves and give over everything you owned into their possession. Now come back to Luke 14, if you haven't already. With that in mind, in the same way, Jesus says in verse 33, so, literally, in the same way, therefore, just like like terms of peace are supposed to go according to the law of Moses, I think is what's intended here. So, therefore, in the same way, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You you see the parallel. In the same way that city had to become the slaves and give over everything they owned to the Israelites in order to make peace and keep their lives, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to renounce all that you own. Just give it all over to me and let me just totally rule over your life. What's Jesus calling us to here when he says, renouncing all that we have? Is he calling us as individuals or families to literally sell everything we have, every last possession we have, and then with the proceeds, give it all away? Just become totally poor, begging at the robots. Is is that what he's talking about? I don't think he's saying that here in this text. Now, I want to be careful because maybe the Lord might be leading you now or in the future to do something like that in your life. I think we need to be open to that possibility. But he's not saying that here. I want to be really clear. Here is not a general principle that all of us, therefore, have to go out and do that. But there is something here that is for all of us. We do have to renounce all that we have in order to follow Jesus. So what is he talking about? It's interesting, the word renounce here is used six times in the New Testament, six other times. And every other time it's used, it's used in the context of a person leaving another person's presence. It's just translated differently, but it's the same Greek word. So if you were in my home and then you were leaving for the night to go home and rest, you would 
renounce me as you left my home. That's, it's literally the same word. You would say goodbye is how it's translated. Say goodbye, part, part ways. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying we need to literally say goodbye to everything we own, all of our possessions. We need to say goodbye to it and hand it over to Jesus. It doesn't mean we need to sell everything, but we need to, in, a way, in, in some way, we need to, in our minds before the Lord, acknowledge that now this house is under new management, under new ownership. There's a new owner of this house, of this bank account, of this car, of these clothes, of this furniture. Whatever possessions and money you have or you will come into acquiring in the future. Jesus wants to own it all and he wants you to use it all as he leads you individually. And again, that's going to look differently for each of us. For some of us, that's going to mean selling more things and keeping less. Living at this level and others living at this level. There's not a one-size-fits-all for each of you. You've got to work that out. But he wants a willingness that says, Lord, I don't own anything anymore. You know, when I grew up, we used to write our initials uh, on the tags. I don't know if some of you ever did that for your kids or as you grew up. Especially if you were playing sports, you were around a lot of other kids, you take your t-shirt off, you got this pile of clothes now, and a lot of the t-shirts look the same, so how do we tell whose is who? And we would, we'd write our initials or our names on it to declare ownership for that. What Jesus is saying is, is pretty simple. It's difficult, but it's pretty simple. Uh, we need to write over every tag, you know, of clothing, over every piece of furniture, over everything we own, over every rand in our bank accounts. J.C., Jesus Christ. He owns this now. I'm no longer the owner. I'm just a manager. I'm just a steward now. Lord, how would you have me to use this? And as I said, I don't know what the Lord wants for you personally in your life. Could mean he wants you to sell something and give the proceeds to an unbelieving neighbor who's in need. Or take something and give it to a believer that you know needs it. I have no idea, but there's just a willingness here to say, I no longer have autonomy. I no longer make the determinative decisions on what we do with this or that that we own. It, the Lord owns it now. It's all his, and I'm just going to funnel it. I'm just going to direct and channel it however the Lord is leading in my life. We just need to be willing to do whatever he calls us to. My mother and father-in-law um, trying to take this this instruction from Jesus serious, at one point in their lives, they literally went home and walked through their entire home. This stuck with me when they told me this. And they just, out loud, just for themselves and before the Lord, just said, this couch belongs to the Lord. This car, and they just went through, probably not like every piece of socks and you know, things like that, but just systematically, they worked through it out loud just to remind themselves and they even at one point had this, this habit of um, uh, if someone came in and said, oh, that's a nice, so, and they complimented, they would say, would you like it? <laughs> and they'd actually try to give it away, you know, just, they were just always trying to um, not think that they were more spiritual or that, you know, to not do it would be sin, but they were constantly creatively thinking of ways that they could just hold on to things more loosely and be ready whenever the Lord said, I want you to take that and give it or sell it, that they would just do it and not be so, so attached, okay? Um, that has stuck with me, and I just think that's the attitude 
the Lord wants us to have, not to hold on to anything. It's what they did in the early church, right? Acts 2, Acts 4. You read the end of Acts 2, middle of Acts 4. Not one of them was claiming that anything belonged to their own, but they were selling it and giving the proceeds to the apostles' feet and distributing it. That's not Christian socialism. Those are people who own those things. But when a need arose, they were willing to say, it's not mine to keep at your expense. Belongs to the Lord, and if one of the Lord's children is hungry and is in need, I'll let it go. I'll sell it, give it to the apostles, and make sure it gets to who has need in the community of believers. That's the attitude and commitment Jesus is calling for. So those are his conditions, at least here in Luke 14, in this passage. We need to be devoted to Jesus above everyone else, die to everything and everyone in our lives that hinders us from following Christ, and surrender all that we have, all that we own under Jesus' ownership to use it for his purposes to serve him. Now, I'm almost positive. You just can't read these words and think about them or hear two teachings on them without being challenged and convicted in one or more areas of your life, right? I know I found these, again, challenging, especially the area of uh, taking up the cross, like I told you, with technology and the use of time and things like that. Um, So I'm challenged by these things. Also in my marriage and in my parenting and decisions I make to want to honor Jesus more and follow him more fully. This is what it costs, Jesus says, to follow him. It's a great cost. I mean, you can't come to the end of this passage and not conclude. What's it going to cost? It's going to cost everything. And that's just really the summary, right? It's going to cost all that you are and all that you have if you want to follow Jesus into the kingdom of God. But let me just say two quick things in closing. First, there's not just a cost to following Jesus. There's also a cost to not following Jesus. Got to think about that. The King of Kings is coming back soon. His day of wrath is upon us. He's coming back to judge the whole world. And those who are not his disciples will not enter the kingdom of God. They'll be shut out forever with no second chances and perish in their sins. There is a massive cost to following Jesus. Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life, whoever wants to hold on to his life, will lose it in the end. But whoever loses his life now for my sake will save it in the end. What does it profit a person if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So there's a choice, right? I hope you see there's a cost either way. You're not going to, you don't get out of it without a cost. There's a price tag on both options. You can give up your life, give up relationships, give up what you own, give it all up now to follow Jesus. That's the cost now. And in the end, you'll gain eternal life. But if you try to hold on to those things, to family, to friends, to jobs, to honor, to possessions, to money, to future desires, to whatever it is, to the point that you won't follow Jesus because you want to hold on to that and you you can't follow him as long as you hold on to that, then it won't cost you now, but it will cost you then. It will cost you your soul forever in hell when Christ comes back. And I hope you realize the value of your soul and of eternity. This will only 
compel you to choose Jesus if you really value the next life, eternity, and if you value your soul. I mean, let me ask you, seriously, you can think about this right now. If I offered you 20 million rand for both of your eyeballs, your left and right eye, would you sell them to me for 20 million rand? If you would, do this. If you wouldn't, do this. Okay, I'm going to assume that those of you that didn't move your neck at all, it's just a cultural thing. You're just very stiff in church, or you're not really paying attention and could care less, or it's so obvious that I don't even need to move my head, right? Hopefully it's the last one, right? I trust none of you would sell me your eyeballs for 20 million rand. Now, if you think about it, that is a lot of money. I'm pretty sure if you had 20 million rand, you would not have to work another day in your life. You could pump that into a bank account, a savings account, and it would just, on interest, just bring in the money you needed for the rest of your life. It'd set up your kids, your grandkids. This would be a multi-generational sacrifice you would be making. And everyone else who had eyeballs would really enjoy it. <laughs> but that's the thing, isn't it? You're thinking, well, I got 20 million rand, but I have no eyeballs to actually enjoy the stuff I could buy or I could see. I could travel the world, but I can't see a thing anymore. You see, your eyes are very valuable to you, aren't they? You can put a price tag on both eyeballs. Maybe one eyeball, but not both, right? Now, if you think about it, at the end of your life, what's going to happen to your eyeballs when you die? If they bury your body in the ground, what's going to happen to your eyeballs? Worm food, right? Worms are going to chow it. They're just going to disintegrate and shrivel up in the grave, grave dust. And yet, you won't give them to me for 20 million rand, but you're going to give them to the worms when you die for zero. They're not going to pay you a thing. Now, you won't give me your eyeballs, but will you give up your soul for way less? Your soul is infinitely more valuable than your eyeballs. Because when your body is buried in the ground, the real you your soul, your spirit is going to live. And it's either going to live in the presence of God and the joy of Jesus Christ or in the absence of God in unending sorrow and pain in hell. Now, if you're not willing to sell me your eyeballs, if you think you'd be a fool to sell me your eyeballs for 20 million rand, you'd be a bigger fool, I want you to know, to sell your soul for the baubles and dust and worthless things. This world is passing away. It looks really good. It looks really big and valuable, but in light of eternity, it's passing away. It's worthless. And your soul is worth so much more, and where you spend eternity is worth so much more. Don't sell your soul for the things of this world. There's a cost to not following Jesus, and as I've already alluded to, this is the last thing I want to say, there is a great reward for following Jesus. There's a cost to follow Jesus, but there's also a great reward to following Jesus. Rich young man once asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, keep the commandments, and he proudly boasted and said, I've done them all from my youth up. And Jesus said, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the guy, we're told, the guy walked away sorrowful from Jesus, for he had many possessions. Seems like they had him, Right? He couldn't break free from them. He couldn't give them up. And he went away. And um, Peter came up to Jesus, probably on behalf of the disciples, and said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What will we have? Right? He heard the big promise he just made to the rich young ruler. And this is what Jesus said to him. 
Truly I say to you, I read these words as a benediction last week. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this life houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. If you thought this was prosperity gospel, he then says, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. That's the kicker. The kicker is not, and we've experienced this, by the way. My wife and I have experienced, we have many mothers, many fathers, many brothers, many houses. We lived in many, we've experienced this that Jesus is talking about in this life, but that's not the kicker. The kicker is, When we get there, we're going to have eternal life. That's really what ought to motivate us to give up everything to follow Jesus, to be in the kingdom, to joyfully sell and give up everything, to possess the pearl of great price, and to know we're going to be there in the kingdom of God for all eternity in his presence. I mean, again, let me just close with this illustration. If each of you sat here today with a bag, a little plastic baggie of dirt on your lap, and I had this big kind of vault up here and I opened it up and just had to kind of squint because you saw the light hitting all the diamonds inside of there. And I said, there are, I don't know how many of you, 20. I have 20 bags of diamonds in here. And I'm willing to give each of you your own bag of diamonds if you'll just, but here's the thing, you have to give me your bag of dirt, right? You knew that was coming, right? You had to give up your bag of dirt, Now, what would you think if you looked over at the person next to you as you obviously got up immediately with your bag and were like, yes. And you looked at the person next to you and you just saw them kind of, you know, just kind of counting the little pieces of dirt in their bag and hemming and hawing. And you said, come on, aren't you going up? And they said, man, but this dirt, I mean, I've had this for so long and it's going to be so difficult to give this up. Look at this dirt. It's really nice dirt. I got it out of my garden in the backyard. It's just... I don't know if I can do it, right? Your jaw would hit the ground and you might hit them. Give me it, I'll turn it in for you, I'll take it, right? It's just a no-brainer. You'd think a person would be a fool not to give up dirt for diamonds. Well, again, you can see where I'm going here. Maybe you can. How much more of a fool would an individual be not to give up the worthless things of this world to have eternal life with Jesus Christ? If you understand, if God has shown you the value of being in his kingdom and having eternal life with him, you'd give it up in a moment. You already have. Some of you already have. Okay? And I just want to encourage you that, yeah, it's costing you a lot right now, but just hold out. Okay? Because you're making the best investment you could ever make in light of eternity. No bank account, no insurance policy, no cryptocurrency. I I don't even want to touch that stuff, you know. But none of that compares at all as far as return on your investment. All of that over-promises and under-delivers. But God is going to deliver way more, far more exceedingly beyond what we could ask or think. It has not even entered into man what God has prepared for those who love him in his kingdom. Okay? I mean, sin-free, new bodies, no aches, no pains, no disease, no death, no sorrow. I mean, it's just amazing if you think about what's waiting for the children of God when they're going to be revealed in resurrected bodies in the glory of Jesus Christ. We just can't put it into words. And whatever we can put it into, even if we're wrong, the best part about it is we're wrong because it's going to be better. 
And the best part about it is it will never end. Will never. The worst part about hell is it's forever. The best part about the kingdom of God, it's forever. It's equally forever. Never have to fear losing it. Never have to fear the end of the weekend, it's back to work on Monday. You know, end of family camp and it's back to normal life. End of holiday and it's, never have to fear that in the kingdom. Forever and ever, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days. Have you thought about that line? No less days after 10,000. Because infinity, I'm not a math major, but I'm pretty sure the law of infinity is infinity minus 10,000 equals infinity. You can't shave off of infinity. And that's what's waiting for those who give up everything to possess Jesus Christ right now. Let's pray. Lord, help us, please. We need faith. We need the grace of your spirit um, to be like Moses who considered the two options. He could stay in Pharaoh's house and get an Egyptian education and maybe be royalty and have so much ease and comfort and treasure, or he could give it all up and choose to be afflicted with the people of God. And he saw by faith that that second option was infinitely better because he would be with you. He'd be following you He'd have you, and he'd have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a treasure that thieves cannot break in and steal, and nothing can destroy that's being guarded for him. Lord, open our eyes, please, for the first time or for the tenth or hundredth time. Remind us of what a great treasure is waiting for us there in your presence, in your kingdom. And compel us, out of joy, not begrudgingly, but out of joy, to give up We're to give up again all that we are and all that we have to follow your son. He's worthy of it. And we want others to see what a treasure he is in our lives. How much more valuable and worthy he is to be lived for and devoted to than anyone or anything else in this life or all of it combined. So would you do that, please? We need you to do that in our hearts. Set us free or help us to walk in the freedom that Christ has set us free for um, to really live as Christ's free men, bound by love and value to him. We ask this for Jesus, Father. Amen.